Well, welcome, Andrew. Welcome. welcome. Thank you. Welcome to me back. Yeah. You Here have, we are again. Yeah, uh, so, I think this is our fifth. I think it is. Who would have thought? Cross and Creation. And last time you and Lisa did a great oh, job yeah. on Genesis 22. That was fun. Fun. Um, well, tonight, what we're uh, going to do is Andrew and I are going to have a, a sort of a his, look through history, the development of the idea of penal substitution. Uh, we, we, I don't think we can pretend that we're historians. I don't think we can pretend that we could you know, give a adequate coverage of the development of a major theme through 2,000 years. But um, I think the main flows are relatively clear and particularly what I'd call a pivot around Ansel yeah. of Canterbury in the 11th century. And we'll actually focus a lot on him. On Ansel. On Ansel. So, um, but as always, I think it's worthwhile just stepping back and um, working, recalling what we're trying to do, um, which is really a paradigm shift around the nature of atonement and whatever that means. Um, and in that context, um, really going back to Genesis 1 and saying, well, if, if we started in Genesis 1 with creation and we looked from creation to the cross, yep. what would that look like? Um, we did note that there's a little bit of an either-or between those two parties, that you know, sometimes that the uh, theologians of the church focused on creation and tended not to focus on the cross, or that's the yeah. criticism. <coughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think the modern Protestant evangelical world would go the other way, which is now our focus is on the cross and the focus on creation or natural grace is a little bit... Um, subdued. Not, subdued and idealistic. So we think our goal is to in, um, inter integrate those two things. So let me begin. I think it's good if we record, just have a little bit of a discussion on where our thinking is so far, because it's true to say that we're seeing our own thinking develop. Absolutely, yeah. So what would be, as you look back where we've come, how would you summarise the thoughts, or the things that have mattered to you yeah. that have made a difference? Well, I think the, the starting point, like it's great to start at Genesis 1, but when you start passing through Genesis 3, how you describe Adam's sin, and the, the chapter doesn't mention the word sin, is I, I think sets you off on a, a trajectory. So a lot of our systematic theologies will say Adam broke God's moral law, where what we're saying is no, he, he, he didn't trust God in a relationship. He, he didn't trust God's benevolence. And so it was a relational problem. So I think that starting point sets sets the tone for where everything else will, will well, not go. Well, sets the tone. It's almost like a slight deviation of a few yeah. degrees. Depending which road you take, you're going to go end up going down quite different paths. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the uh, from the very I think the very first of it, these sessions, you made you reframed Adam's sin yep. as not believing that God intended good toward him toward him you'd like to just <clears throat> i think it's worthwhile recalling that because that's quite a paradigm shift it is quite a paradigm shift <clears throat> and as i said um I, I i think because of certain theories and they're just theories about the atonement people have had to backfill their theology 
and finds more and more legal stuff to be broken so it can be fixed, right? If, once you, if you've got an atonement theory that says a law's been broken, then you've got to put the law there to be broken, where it's not in the text, and Jewish people don't tend to talk in those, those terms. And when you, when you look in the text at exactly what happened, um, Adam simply didn't trust that God intended good towards him and thought there was a better way and, and took advice from elsewhere. That, that at a really rudimentary level is, is what happened. Well, that, that, that's powerful. Um, when, I, when I heard you talk about that even tonight, I think we'd had a discussion before this. Uh, I think a lot of people would see that characterised the Genesis 3 sin as rebellion. Yeah, uh, that, that's a very yeah. big word, and uh, very often I've said, I've heard I've seen it, it's pride. Yep. <clears throat> yes. Um, and um, of course, they're interpretations of the text. But if if you start with what you've just said, I, I, if in a human relationship I don't trust the other person wants good for me, um, what I then become is independent. Yeah. Um, I'll cut myself off from that person. Yeah. Which, and that's, I think, a better way to look at the so-called pride is, is independence. It's, it's because no longer do I believe in the providence um, around me and the created order. I yeah. don't believe in that. It's up to me now. So, yeah. And when you've got a God who, all the, you know, the metaphors that are used all through the Old Testament is the, the bridegroom. When you've got, when it, it's a relationship, amazingly, we... we the, well, the metaphors, at least, are very, very equal, where rebellion assumes that it's, it's not a, an equal relationship. It almost assumes there needs to even be one. Yeah, that's right. And, and so you, we, we've been saying that when God says he is holy, that means he's radically different. And God is always saying, I'm different to the gods of the surrounding nations. And that's why I thought it was important to do Genesis 22. Once you realise how God's different to other gods, he, he's not built in our image and maybe he wants something, a different sort of relationship with us, which, which you see in, well, in the metaphors. I think the, the, the despotic idea of God, um, rebellion, uh, he's not on our side and he doesn't trust good for us. Of course, I think Tom Wright would say that is paganising. Yep. Uh, that is a fundamentally pagan view of God, that the, the cosmology of the ancient Near Eastern world, which Ian Proven and John Walton have taught us so much about, is that... The, yeah. The gods do not intend good for us. Um, we don't know quite what they <laughs> intend in their case, if anything at all, but one thing's for sure, they're not on our side. Yeah. And I think that is deep in the human heart, some sense of we all grapple with it, doom, um, it's me against fate, you know. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the inimitable uh, words of King Lear on the heath, as flies to wanton boys, so are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. Uh, you understand? I'm in, I'm in an indifferent world. Yep. And that indifference essentially is there is not good uh, in the world. So, um, with that, uh, I think a very important, um, perhaps one talk back, two talks back, uh, new word we also introduced was this idea of when I do go back to creation and the goal of relationship, the next thing down is the, the mission and the role of humanity in the created order. And that's where you introduced us to the idea of dominion 
and we talked about mission failure rather than... <laughs> That's right, mission failure. So do you want to just recall that? <coughs> it's a very um, bold thing to say, I introduced Dominion. I think the text introduced Dominion. And look, it, it, if, if you've got a view that, that God's sovereign and can play this, this game any way he likes, then it raises the question, why, why, why bother with a creation? You know, it's, it's, what, what, why is it necessary? Why, you know, why bother? Because presumably, if, if he could have, if, if it worked for his plans and purposes, he, he could know how everyone's going to turn out and just put those ideas in our head at the end and fast track, you know, save us from the whole tedium of struggle here and just cut to the end, but he doesn't. So it's, it's not hard to assume that there must be something purposeful about this creation and there is something that we do in this creation that gets us to be more like whatever God wants us to be like. And the term that's used is he gives us dominion. So we, I, I assume that it, it, it's us taking that, that creative role um, is part of the way that we, we grow into the sorts of people who can sit around the banquet table for eternity with Jesus and be entertaining guests. There's much to be said about that, but I think it's really, there's a few important things. Um, uh, the, way you, uh, the, the way you've just been talking is by a series of rhetorical questions. Yeah. Um, and, and very interestingly, that's exactly how Anselm proceeds. Uh, I like that about him a lot, because I think they're questions that you can't be glib about. They're real questions. Mm. It's a real question, and, and we Christians, unfortunately, tend to t take doctrine as cliche and don't think about it. But um, when we get to Anselm, the dialogue that he sets up is between himself and Bozo. <laughs> Bozo. <laughs> Top Bozo's man. a pupil of his. Not and, a clown. He's no, he's no clown. As no. a matter of fact, I find Bozo's questions, which sometimes he develops over two pages to, to Anselm, intriguing. And, and I, I, I actually... I actually was really inspired because he, he's taking, in the 11th century, the view of the unbeliever. This is stupid. Why would this happen? You can't tell me this. And Anselm's got to find answers to him that actually never come from Scripture. I won't get on to that now, but, but I think it's, yeah. it's interesting. And that question you asked is one of the ones he asked. All right. Why can't God just do it by decree? Yeah, yeah. Why, why does he have to go ahead and die? And now, most Christians would say, oh, why... Well, if you can't answer that question, you can't really talk about the gospel. And if you've never yeah. thought about that as a question, you yeah. can't talk about the gospel. So that's that one. I think the other point about dominion, two points I wanted to make, is evidently far more important as an attribution of the victory of Christ to Paul than it is to modern believers. Okay. Far yeah. more important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, modern believers say, well, he forgive us our sin. Paul rarely says that. If you read Ephesians yep. 1, which I was doing again this morning, it's all about he, when he raised from the dead, gave him a name above every name, above all dominion, authority. Yep. It's dominion he's got. He's got, yeah. And, 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 and that's, and Hebrews is exactly the same. Yeah. It's dominion he's got. Um, he, when we read, he will inherit all things. He will inherit dominion. Uh, when Paul says blessed, he's blessed, and then he's wanting us to share in that dominion. Yeah. Um, so this idea of dominion, I think, has been sidelined in a lot of evangelical thought in place of forgiveness. But it's clearly 
the most casual reading of the New Testament far more important in Paul's cosmology than it is. So we mm. haven't got his cosmology. No. So I think the dominion, what you're doing in taking us back to the mission of humanity is important. And um, the final thing I'll say about it is there's two ways you can describe a problem. One is kind of going back to the problem, but the other is looking at the problem as a failure to achieve a purpose. Yep. In which case I'd now talk about the purpose, which is what you've done. Yeah. And I, I think how, what, what we, we tend to do when it comes to dominion is we, we, we assume that our dominion ceased totally uh, at the fall. And so a, a lot of theological debate is about decisions or, or beliefs you have about continuity between parts of scripture, pre-fall, post-fall, eternity, and what, what actually happened. And yeah, I, I think without, thoughtlessly, a lot of people go, because of the fall, those things that occurred in Genesis 1 don't count anymore, where they still do. They, as you say, Paul picks up on it. Mm. Great. So, history mm. and why that's important. Um, I want to make probably three points uh, about why we, our approach, why we think history is important. Um, when I say think history is important, what I mean is putting anybody including the New Testament, but including later people like Luther, into their historical context. Yep. And I think it's the only way to be fair to people. It's the only way to be fair to Augustine and hmm. people you disagree with. Yep. Um, simply because it's in the nature of human beings to formulate their ideas in opposition to other ideas. And so if you don't understand the ideas they're in opposition to, you can't understand them. And secondly, when we do that, and I, my wife will tell you I'm really bad at doing that, it tends to polarise your point of view. You tend, it pushes you to an, actually a, an extreme position, yeah. which is a reflex against of what... Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're defined by what we oppose. And I think so, and I think there's nothing wrong with this. You know, we're, God's put us into history, he's put us... But I think, you know, we've, we've got a context in our world where we have to do mm. the same thing. Uh, and then as well as that, I think when we're looking at atonement, um, we treasure the idea of we're looking at a mystery, which is looked at perspectively. And at the very, very least, um, the penal substitutionary model is one perspective that has over monopolized. That, that's probably it's that's, just a theory. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's not just... It a, should be just a theory. My point is, no reality. The, uh, we are human beings who are struggling. Not struggling. We, uh, we always use analogy yeah. um, to describe reality. Reality is... For me to say E equals MC squared is an analogy. Yeah. I mean, reality is not E equals MC squared. It's something else. So, therefore, um, this is not to be despairing, but to acknowledge that well, critiquing the analogies we might use is illuminating and getting good ones and bad ones. And um, I think the uh, I was going to deal with your point, Ron. I'm going to now quote quantum mechanics, so I get <coughs> it wrong. Oh, yes. <laughs> but um, we tend to think the nature of reality is mechanistic and clear and precise, whereas what you've taught us, Ron, about quantum mechanics is actually that the, the more you get down to the nature of the building blocks of reality, the more they're, they're not building blocks. Um, and so that we're, we're 
the nature of reality upon which everything concrete sits seems to be extremely mysterious, such that, as Ron has explained it to me, the, uh, the mathematics can only be on probabilities. <laughs> we can't actually map the uh, pathway of the atoms in the split, um, split view experiment. So if that's mysterious, if this table's mysterious, one could be begin saying, well, probably the cross and the redemption of the entire cosmos is also a bit mysterious, so we'll be humble about it. Yeah, and you'd assume, if it was really important to God, that we understand exactly how the mechanism worked, and he could, he'd, he'd explain it that way, which raises two issues. One, you're probably right, maybe there's a, it's a little bit beyond our experience, so there's, there's not a vocabulary to explain it, so you've got to use metaphors. It's a rather unique thing to occur in history, so that it shouldn't surprise us that we've got to resort Actually, to metaphors. yeah, the way I look at it, it's very positive. Um, if, you're, if I want you to understand something, I'll make you work at it. Yeah. I'm not going to give it yeah. to you on a platter. That's right. And it's, I'm a teacher, that's what I do. I'm going to make you work at it. Absolutely. And I think God wants us to work at it. So, at, at every generation, you've got to have a go at it. And, and that's actually, you, you, you come out deeper and richer in your understanding. Because God does want understanding. There's no question about that. Yep. It's just that the kind of understanding he's offering us is not a total mastery. Anyway, we should move on. I think we all, we yep. all agree that uh, we're, uh, we in Gospel Conversations are happy swimming in the fog of ambiguity. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> that having been said, uh, we were going to look at Four eras tonight, yep. but really um, only one of them in depth. So the apostolic era, New Testament, um, we'll just mention a bit about that. Um, that was then followed by the patristic era, which would be next two to three hundred years. Yeah. And um, the patristic's view of atonement is very, very um, important and um, I, th I think they, they had the, the most illuminated picture of it. Then we'll look at Anselm who, as I said, lived in the 11th century and clearly this was a major pivot, crystallisation um, of what became penal substitution. He didn't actually call it that but no. nonetheless a lot of the mechanisms and assumptions, uh, the logic that he put in place. Yep. So Anselm and um, that's what we'll, because he's a... So it just means there's a football game starting somewhere in the world. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Melbourne. Do you want to tell us the score? <laughs> Maybe. Um, uh, so that's actually, I think it's really valuable, given he's pivotal, to, 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 to really get inside him. And most of the time mm. we'll do that. Um, and then... Uh, the reformers, the reformers, um, and which is Luther and Co. We won't say too much about them. I think it's fair enough to say they were picking up the bat and handed down yeah. from Anselm in many ways. Mm. And then we'll finish off. And so, again, going back to starting points, I, I think it's fair to say that when when the Western Church got an empire with an army and then a whole lot of institutions around that, it, it, it changed its theological perspective on a lot of things. So there are a lot of questions. No, no, it's a new thought. <laughs> so that, that trajectory, I think, in the, in the Western church, um, it, it settles in 
in a way that wasn't there in the Eastern Church. And that, I, I think that's why we see some argy-bargy between the Eastern and Western Church, that once, once you've been adopted and, by an empire and you've now got an army, that's a very, very different world you're living in. Correct. Um, now, of course, if we start on the, in the New Testament and with the apostolic era, that was not the case. They were, they were not, they were losers no. and outsiders yep. and a small group. I think um, all I wanted to say about the apostolic, the epistles, is that I think the, the apostolic era was one more of a declaration than an explanation. Absolutely. Uh, there was a declaration of the Messiah's come and he's changed the world and he's risen from the dead and this has forgiven our sins. Is it, rather than, in the same way with the Trinity, they didn't, they declared yeah. the divinity of Christ in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was fine, they yeah. declared it, but they didn't explain it. And, and you could understand that the battles they were fighting were declaration battles. Yes. Um, existential, it was existential battles of declaration and probably pulling themselves apart from the Jewish womb they came out of. So little wonder they didn't have time to sit back and say, oh, that, that raises a good question. <laughs> yeah. So, but we, in Gospel Conversations, and everyone we're looking at would look back to the epistles <coughs> as having the raw materials for us to work on. Absolutely. In the same way it did with the Trinity. Yeah. Um, although, interestingly, when I get to Alan Anselm, it just so happens, for different reasons, that um, in his essay, he does not do that. He doesn't use scripture all right. at all. Yeah. And that, that's not to criticise him. No, no, it's just to... But just to say that was a deliberate um, methodological point he took. So... Um, so with that, and, and I think the other thing to say, which is just, I've just thought of this, in, in, about the, the epistles, it probably is fair to say that the penal substitutionary um, theory of atonement is very based on Paul and very based on a, a couple of his epistles. Mm. Now, I only want to just lay this thought out for us all tonight. Um, one thing Tom Wright said in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, was he's often wondered how different the Reformation would have been if, they'd, if Calvin and Luther had spent more time on Ephesians and less time on Galatians yep. and Romans. And uh, so that's just an interesting yeah, yeah. thought. Yeah, that is an interesting thought. Um, but then an even bigger thought is John, the apostle, has a very different view of what went on to Paul. Um, and I think the theories of the atonement have been so dominated by Paul that, that they're overshadowed by John. I mean, I think I mentioned this to Rick Watts sometime, a long time ago, and we agreed. Actually, John's Gospel has almost nothing in it about sin. It's about life and death, hmm. light and darkness. It's, those are the vast images that drive the book. And his images of redemption are very organic, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. And so if it dies, it bears much fruit. Um, he saw a vast transition going on, for sure, but it was, you'd never get a penal substitution model out of John's Gospel or Epistles. Mm. Anyway, that, all that to say that I think the resource in the New Testament is richer than has been. Yeah, and I, I bring up in... in Possible defence of Paul. Oh, would you? Yeah, <laughs> just maybe. 
That, well, um, that, I've mentioned that, uh, that section in Leon Morris's book, the, the Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, in about chapter 8. He, he points out that, be careful, we, we probably use the word righteousness in a way that is very different to those uh, in, in first century Judaism, in, well, Greece. Uh, yeah, I think Greek. what you're saying, in, in, well, I think I read what you just said about yeah. the defence of Paul, is that actually Paul was not really putting forward penal substitutionary atonement. His, his use of the word righteousness has been distorted. Hijacked. Hijacked. Yeah. Hijacked's a good, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if that base of understanding, something amazing happened, something totally surprising, something that turned every, everything on its head, it, 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 the concept of rule and authority, the concept of yeah. victory, the concept of hero, the concept of leader, the idea of sacrifice, everything got upended that day on Calvary that God died. Yeah. I mean, it is... It's huge. It is the most stunning storyline in all of yeah. human history, and they had to unpack it, which they did. The patristics, um, their theory of the atonement is often called Christus Victor. Mm. Um, now, um, and their theory of the atonement was, I'll, I'll just say a couple of headline issues sure. about it. Invariably, they began with creation. Mm. Uh, very um, powerful theories of creation. Yep. Um, they didn't begin with sin, they began with the purpose of God in creation. And then secondly, invariably the enemy was death, not sin. That, that's how they thought it through. So, um, and we could say a great deal about them. Um, I will, however, just foreshadow this. I do hope to get someone else, uh, Ben Myers, yep. to talk on the patristics because... Ben's an Australian. He gave a magnificent uh, talk some years back called the Patristic Model of the Atonement, um, and I thought it'd be great if we could, mm. if we twist his arm to. He may not, but and we can tell because of the Christological debates and the Trinitarian debates that that occupied the the early Church that they they were much more interested in the Christus than the Victor. That they, they, they were trying to work out who is this person that saves us rather than what's the mechanism of salvation? Because if, if, if he's not who he says he is, then there's no point asking the second Correct. question. They, they went into the incarnation far more powerful. Yeah. And um, Ben disagrees with the Christus Victor, which came from Gustav, what's his uh, name? Uh, yeah, he disagrees with it. He thinks he fundamentally misread Gregory of Nyssa because I think the Christus Victor is there's a battle between yeah. God and Satan and he disagrees with that. He says yeah. he hasn't read... There's not a lot of text. Properly. Yeah. No, no, it's 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 death that's the enemy. Anyway, and death is a privation, not a reality. Hmm. It's the lack of life, not life. Yep. That's, that's the like death. darkness is a privation, lack Correct. of light. Correct. And so anyway, it, 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 I think Ben's talk's fantastic, uh, and I've invited him to come along, and be part be part of us, and we'll see if he does. <laughs> uh, that then. That heritage then leads us to this, as I said, pivot point of yeah. Anselm of Canterbury. Yep. Um, so do you want to give your view of Anselm of Canterbury? All right, so I, I boiled it down in terms of history that he, he had 
to make his uh, response against the, the idea that there was a battle against Satan, he, he thought, no, if there's a sacrifice being made, it's not being made to Satan, it's being made to God. And then he needed a backfill. What's, what's the reason that that would be the case? And he, he says words to effect because there was a feudal... Uh, God is like a feudal lord, and when he is dishonoured, someone's got to pay. And so that was quite... He just drew from his, his context. And uh, as you said, there's not a lot in Scripture that, that would drive you down that way. Now... I, I think it's important, as we were discussing earlier, that Anselm comes across as a relatively humble sort of guy. And I'm, I'm not sure if, if he was told before he, he wrote this that um, it was going to shape a strand of theology for, you know, for, for 900 years. I'm, I'm not sure how... Like, it's just a theory. It's just a theory. Um, and and I, I think it's good that he raised a theory, but it, it, it's... It's taken on a life of its own. And what, what happens is once you've got that idea embedded about a Lord who is offended, then people start thinking that's their relationship b between God and us. And I'm not denying ontologically that's the case, but what if God actually was trying to treat us as more equal than that? And so it sets you off on a, on a, on a trajectory where you start backfilling your Bible with a whole lot of assumptions, unhelpful assumptions. Yeah, I agree entirely. Um... Uh, Anselm, if you, if you read him, I don't think anyone here will, so I'll have to take my word for it. <laughs> um, was humble and speculative and agile in his thinking. He's a very clear thinker. Yeah. Um, but uh, he, he was what I'd call rhetorical, um, m m meaning that in rhetoric you are comfortable with ambiguity, you, you don't necessarily, you're not dogmatic. Yep. So, uh, when, when a, a, an example of a non-rhetorical genre would be the catechism. Okay, so when you want to become a, when you're a candidate to be admitted to a church, there's a, there's a, there's a catechism you go through and you get asked questions mm. for which there are rote answers. Yep. You've learned them. You've been instructed. It's a bit like sitting for a driving license and uh, they're right or wrong. Your answers are right or wrong. Now that poses as question and answer, but it's not rhetorical in the slightest. Um, it's dogmatic. Yep, pass or fail. Um, well, it's built upon a very, an idea that truth is a precise set of axioms. Rhetoric is, well, I'm not quite sure. Um, uh, I'm, I've been wondering about this and here's how I would frame my wonderings and um, what do you think about that? Uh, where there's a genuine sense of unexpectedness in the answer mm. and the very question will provoke lines of thought that you hadn't quite thought of. Augustine at his best is like this in his book on Christian doctrine but Anselm is very much like him. And like you, I'm pretty sure he was humble, he didn't think he had all the answers, um, prepared to be proved he was wrong. I think he'd be a bit bit shocked that his view had got concretized into the total theory of atonement. But let's just, we'll come back to him. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be nice if we went straight on then into your view of how his view was then colonized, taken over by yep. the reforms. So I, I think the, the way the metaphor I use is uh, Anselm creates 
a, a theory, which is like a, a vehicle, and, and the engine that drives that vehicle is the idea that uh, honour is essential to God because he's like a feudal lord, and if he's dishonoured by rebellion, which presupposes an, a, an interesting order, uh, then, then something's got to be done to, uh, to bring back the honour. And, and that was Jesus' death. And what happened with the reformers, over time they looked at that, 500 years, and they, they didn't quite like the, what that did to the doctrine of God. Um, and they lived in a time where people were rethinking uh, boundary lines between kingdoms and people were writing constitutions and things like that. And they, they immediately fell down on law. Um, well, they were both, were both Calvin and... Luther, well, lawyers. And so what, what they do is they, they take the engine that Anselm had put in there and replace that engine. So everything is really very, very similar, except that engine's about a law. And as soon as you say there's a law there, you've got to, as I said earlier, backfill and say, ah, Adam broke that law. Nothing in the text says that. You'll read some places where it will say that the way Adam got the moral law is while they were God and Adam were walking in the garden, that's when God instructed him. And so you get this, this superstructure of made-up stuff. So there's a, an idea that, that there is a law that, that even God can't do anything about. Um, and that, that's, that's called righteousness. And again, we, we might dispute whether 16th century law and righteousness are what was meant by God when he gave us the New Testament. Yeah, so you're very right, first of all, um, just so everyone knows. I mean, honour is the word he uses, mm -hmm. uh, Anselm, that is, and to disobey is to insult. Yeah, that's Another that's word right. he uses. Um, so it's very, very hierarchical, yeah. um, his view of society. And uh, it's, it's the, the shift to the... Well, it's, it's four or five hundred years later, but the shift to the reform world is only slight mm. because in the medieval era, um, the feudal system was both an economic system and a judicial system. The landlord could hold courts, sentence people to death, as well as he was raising, it was always a hint, taxes yep. and, and fees. Um, so there was a complete judicial and economic um, uh, slavery really yeah. to the landlords by the, by the common people. Now, fast forward to the time, the 16th century, and the um, uh, emphasis went in, in, into the criminal code versus the honour system. Mm. But it's extremely um, still the same hierarchy. It's the same hierarchy. Same hierarchy. And what, of course, is revealing. I think about, I keep thinking of Jesus' words, by their fruits you shall know them, and revealing, I mean, I've got uh, just a love-hate relationship with Luther and Calvin. Um, it's good not to know too much about Luther. Yeah. Um, the more you know about him, the, the darker the picture gets. Mm. Um, I'm reading a biography of his by Linda Roper, which is pretty riveting, but one of the saddest things is, she said, it is quite chilling and surprising how much, he was a good hater. And he bitterly hated his friends whom he turned against. He destroyed really? their lives. Um, and people have whitewashed that out. Like Karl Stats, yeah, yeah. a guy called Karl Stats, the big case in point. But he destroyed them. 
if you went against him, he, 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 he was in his book called Revenge and that was the end of you. And, and it wasn't like you come to him and say, let's get together, sorry about all that. People tried that with him and he wouldn't do it. So it's, the, and, and then the other part of Luther's character, which is very true and revealing, is as she said, unfortunately, whenever push came to shove and there was a choice, he sided with the aristocracy against the peasants. Mm. Now, the most famous <coughs> example is the Peasants' War, which was awful. Because in a way, his, Luther's theology had fed the peasant war. Absolutely, yeah, ironically. And you start talking about forgiveness and, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a theory of liberation. I mean, it, it's, it's against the shackles of the church and the nobility. So little wonder people picked up and said, oh, wow, the, the, you know, the, the, the aggrieved peasant class in southern Germany um, were flexing their muscles and... Um, uh, what happened in, in the Peasants' Revolt, which I think lasted about three years, was a massacre. Yeah. It was a massacre. Thousands of them were massacred. And Luther was on the side of those doing the massacre. So he didn't read, read Gregory of Nyssa, did he? No, he didn't read Gregory of Nyssa. So it's, it's really hard to work out how, how you get from Gregory of Nyssa, who's he's talking about liberation of slaves, to a bunch of theologians you know, well, thousand think, years I think, later. I think the answer is... Very sadly, the same patriarchal, socio-cultural system was in their mind. The, the yep. landscape of reality, that was it. Mm. And it was unredeemed. People yep. might say they had an unredeemed ontology or an unredeemed yeah, yeah. cosmology. And, That's fair. Um, because of that, the, the default under pressure is to go back into that. Yep. Um, and so, I mean, the, the That's most... That's very generous. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, well, know, I, I ask myself, if I, there but for the grace of God, yeah, yeah. you know, if I was there, what would I do too? Because the other, Luther did great things. He's a bit like Winston Churchill. He was good at war, but not at peace. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, the sad, the, probably the saddest relationship is his relationship with a man called Karlstadt, hmm. um, which Linda Roper claims has been whitewashed out of most, and certainly Christian <laughs> biographies. What happened was that when... Um, when Luther was in, you know, he, he was hijacked yep. by uh, the prince, was it of Saxony, and taken to the castle, you know, in, essentially for his protection. Where in that time he translated the New Testament. So Wittenberg, where they came from, was uh, was now vacant territory. So there was a vacuum of leadership um, of of the nascent Reformation movement there, into which stepped man who was his friend and and had been a, a co-theological student probably didn't have as rich a i think theology or picture of what christ did as luther but nonetheless they were on the same team mm. he took over and he started doing things in the church that all of us would agree with like getting rid of the um a lot of the statues and um uh Essentially, creating a more, when you look at it, you'd say creating a more liberal society out of Wittenberg, yep. you know, declassing it and so on, and stuff that would be the natural social extension of you would have thought of the theology. And of course, what happened was um, this inevitably led, 
when we say peasant class, you need to include the merchant <coughs> class in that, yes. who are often running the city, but then above them all were the nobilities who owned all the land, mm. as did the church, about 50-50 each. So the people who had all the wealth were the church and the nobility, and the merchants were tending to be using enterprise. But there was a lot of tension between the landlords, who might have owned the, you know, the abbey or whatever, and the merchant class. And this tension in Wittenberg was between the councillors who mm. ran the show and were sort of on, on Karlstadt's side and the princes, the prince. And when Luther came back, guess who he sided with? And he, he absolutely destroyed Karlstadt's career and life. Adam. So. Yeah, that doesn't get talked about a lot. No, does it doesn't. It? The man lived with a lot of dissonance. Oh, well, look, he's hard not to like. I mean, he was... You can, whereas Calvin's hard to like. Like, you know, when Alistair McGrath wrote his biography of Calvin, he had to make up the first one-third, which was because Calvin never wrote anything about himself. We, you know, he's just extremely private, you know, so he had really? to essentially put the first third of the book into the Sorbonne and the Paris in which he grew uh, up and then extrapolating, well, perhaps he went to this lecture and perhaps he thought this. Well, we don't know because he yeah, didn't yeah. keep the diary, he didn't say anything. So anyway, the, the, the dark side of, and I haven't got onto the uh, um, Synod of Dort, where no. the five, the tulip came from. From tulip, yep. And the uh, executions that followed that. Yeah, no, that's not talked about very often. Of the Protestant proponents of um, predestination. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, the, 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 the point about this is there's this patriarchal backdrop, yep. master-servant backdrop, out of which we are arguing the theology naturally came could have been feudal or um, might have been nobility, but it was extremely revealing that that backdrop was formed the imagery out of which the model of now God's relation, God must be the ultimate landlord, God must be the ultimate landowner. Yep. If I think about God, who do I think about? Well, he's not the merchant class, he's not the peasants, that's for sure, yeah. um, although kind of forgotten the fact he came as a peasant. But yeah, let's, yeah. let's get that out of the picture. That's right. It destroys everything. He must be like the landlord. And, you know, we've just been through Europe. It, it, uh, I've got a photo which I'm, I'll try and stick up on the web. web. Salzburg. You go to yeah, the yeah. magnificent city of Salzburg. And it's, it's, it's in a sort of valley where Mozart was born. Beautiful place. And right up on the hill, perched up on the hill, is the old Abbey Stroke Castle. And, they, and, and that sense of a dominant mountain on which the landowners, you know, dwelt the cardinal, they're often cardinal yep. and princes, was palpable. And, um, you know, the, during the peasants' result, revolt or part thereof, some of the merchants came forward, you know, with a sort of sheet of demands to the cardinal, who then ceremonially burned them. Yeah, didn't go well. You know, and so... So the, the Jewish community in Europe must have been galling for the nobility because it's, it's such a flat structure and it's, it's more about family than it is about a class structure, relatively flat. Uh, you do have a merchant class, but you don't have that sort of nobility thing running from it. And these are the, the people who bought the Old Testament that brought forth Jesus. I mean, I don't know if they thought about it, but it, it is a, it's a stark contrast what the Western world was like compared with 
the Jewish the communities. During this evening's talk, it would be very interesting to look at you know, the Jewish idea of... Um, Why would you dislike them? Yeah. They're just minding their own business. So, um, so that gives us, the, I think, the big picture. The, yep. uh, and um, the, um, what I would like to do now is I'll dive into Ansel. Ansel, yep. And... Um, because you've, you've given us a very accurate representation of his model of atonement of, around dishonour and insult. Um, so I'll just backfill some yeah, of that backfill. and we can finish it off. Um, he, he was he's Italian, did you know that? No, I didn't. Mm -hmm. Really? Italian. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, because he was Bishop of Canterbury, I thought he was... Yeah, I thought uh, he was English, English. Too, yeah. No, no, he, he was Italian. Um, oh. And uh, sort of left home when he was, after his mother died and travelled the world and... Uh, spent a lot of time in France. That's where he was a very, obviously very bright and mm. very inquiring, and um, went to an abbey in in, uh, in France as a visitor, um, but then became a monk. And in those days, that seems a great life. It's like a license to read and think. Yeah. Um, and that's what he did for ten years. You know. And when they read, it was rumination. You know, they really got to think these. These guys only had a handful of texts to read, as opposed to any oh, other yeah. modern scholar. You, know, you, do, you both can talk about it, Lisa and Jess. But if your bibliography hasn't got 200 books in it, how do you absorb 200 arguments? You, you don't. Yeah. That's the answer. Anyway, leaving all that aside, um, he then moved to the Abbey in England, and uh, somehow or other he became the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1093. So 60, and he never liked it. To his credit, he didn't like the pomp and ceremony. Um, he didn't like the battles with the king. You know, he's, he's a sort of a yeah. true thinker, um, a bit like Ratzinger, the Pope. I think. Yeah, that's reluctant. Um, um, he died in 1109. Now, um, I talked about the sense of his character, uh, very, uh, very bright, but what's really appealing, very devotional and a mentor. All of his writing was to teach the other young people. Mm. They asked him, please write, you know, can you write this down? So very mentoring, uh, and, and his view is always spiritual development, mm. despite being very intellectual. But even as an intellect, he was creative. He didn't just regurgitate. Um, and as an intellect, he was what I call rhetorical. And what does that mean? It means he believed enormously in the power of an argument. Uh, to convince, and um, and that I find very appealing. So he knew he was in a contest of ideas, mm. and he was prepared to develop very creative arguments from first principles about things. So that's all nice, actually, and and um, now. If very the reason why I think it's more than nice and relevant is that um, when he chose to, he didn't therefore point to scripture. He could have did elsewhere, but in the essay we're talking about, which is why God became man, yeah. is the essay where he developed. Yeah. He went to logic. His words were logic and necessity, not scripture. Yeah. So I'm going to argue from logic. Now, people could criticise that, but I think it's really important for us today because it 
forces you to take your language out of religious language yep. and start using language that makes sense to everybody. And he was doing that, I think, out of a great faith in God. If I can't find God, and if I can't argue for God from first yep. principles, then, then I haven't got a God. And it's it, rather David Bentley Hart-like mm. um, that way. And um, so uh, this essay, which is quite long, about 100 pages, Why God Became Man, is structured as a debate. It's not a debate. It's, Socratic, it's a Socratic dialogue where you've got somebody who's younger and a, and, and a pupil, and, and that's Bozo. But Bozo's taking upon himself very much like you find the, a very similar thing in Gregory and in the patristics that the unbelievers of their age mm. and uh, and I found to be honest with you um, reading his questions was sobering in a good way and I'll read a few of them out tonight because I think you say oh, well I've got to get different ways of thinking about this like you, you're kidding God became man God became, he got tired. God, God, yeah. People say this is stupid. Of course they do. And, and, and it's, but the point is it preserves the sheer astonishment of the proposition. Yeah. It is astonishing. And, and therefore, if you can't say something other than believe it, here it is, this verse says it, believe it or not, he, he said, no, well, I want to go deeper. Yeah. And by the way, Athanasius did the same thing. Yes. Uh, he had limits, and, it, and they're very important for us, I think, to be fair to him. And I think to understand why some of his thinking, despite his creativity, was limited, which mm. is, number one, he only read Latin, he didn't read Greek. Mm. Um, and probably, I don't even know if they would have had access to a Greek mm. New Testament in the 11th century. They were using the Latin Vulgate yep. with a bad translation. Number two, yeah. uh, that he had no access to Plato. Oh, really? In the 11th century, they had none of Plato's texts. Of course texts not, yeah. And very little of Aristotle. So he didn't, he didn't have access to... He wasn't... Whereas uh, when you, you want to go to the Cappadocians, they, they, yep. they, knew, they knew Plato and the Greeks back and front from the Greek text. Yep. So he had very few books. Yeah. He had a very limited input to his thinking. The one he did have was St. Augustine. So we're really looking at... Mm. that channel and it is a trajectory isn't it and it does explain I think um, historically why St Augustine had such an influence because we're now looking at the 11th century and the, the simple situation is they only had St Augustine yeah. wow. because he was in Latin and the Western Church had channeled his texts yeah. Yeah. but the, the Eastern ones had been lost and they didn't even have the have the uh, the Plato and yeah. Aristotle. So I found that very illuminating as to explain, you know, the the uh, dominant influence of St Augustine. So this is a man influenced by St Augustine. Now that is big, isn't it? That is big. He he. Now I'll just summarise. I'm not going to summarise all of his argument. He he does it. It's so well organised. He does it for us. Yeah. In other words, he gives us. Uh, he doesn't give us a table of contents. He, he gives us the, oh, yeah, the uh, 25 in book one questions or propositions that he's going to answer one after the other. 
And the 22 in book two, so you just read those two pages and you've got the flow of his argument, which is kind of nice. But all great thinking starts with a question. All great thinking starts with a question, and finding the right question. And his question, which uh, for those of us who I handed out, I've, I've written it out, is really a fabulous question. And I think we could all pin it to the wall and think about it. The question is this, what he says is this, he said, um, the question is this, and he calls this the question on which the whole work hangs. So that's helpful for a start. I mean, a great thinker gives yeah. us, if, we, if I answer this question, there's nothing else to say. Everything I say is, this, is, is relevant to this question. This is the question, by what logic or necessity did God become man? That that is the very so that's the incarnation. Yeah. But notice he says by what logic or necessity. He doesn't say by what scriptures. Yeah. So within reasoning, why was it necessary that God became man? That's the first question, which by the way he barely answers. You know, it, it's a glancing engagement with it, which weakens his whole argument. Mm. Anyway, that to, leaving that aside, um, and and by his death restore life to the world second question and a, a great question Very good. and i love the way he puts it he doesn't say forgive our sins he says yeah. restore life to the world unfortunately he doesn't ever develop that <laughs> phrase if he was had read the patristics he would have more material yeah, yeah. to do it but that's how he says it second question that's the atonement question so incarnation first yep. atonement second and then the caveat, which is, you already raised one of them, really important, when he could have done it another way. Yep. Why, he's got to say, why was there no other way when he could have done it through the, another agency of another human being Proper, and when they get into that, they start to speculate, yep. well, why didn't God just create another Adam with no sin and get him to do the job? That's And, or an angel, angel could have done it, or, and this is really important, simply by willing it. Why couldn't he just say, the sins are forgiven? That's a fabulous mm, question. Yeah. I mean, it's really well structured, and uh, whilst... You can actually look at his whole essay as addressing parts of that and map the parts back to that question as to how yep. satisfying. But that's where it begins, and uh, all credit to him for putting it that way. I, I said, are you going to ask something? Oh, I was just going to say, when you, when you, we, we, we talked about a particular strand of atonement theories, but they do go off another tangents and they they pick up on those various ideas so i think a fellow called grotius picks up on that third idea why can't god if he's sovereign just forgive yeah they're great questions they're great questions and none of us could they'd cause all of us to think of uh, they're not tried answers to on the incarnation where did he go look I, I i could say he doesn't say much about it like this essay is about 100 pages long it gets about a page or so 
and I feel sorry for him because he's almost he, he what he he begins his real interest is the redemption and the cross he starts with the incarnation goes to the cross if you were to read Athanasius yeah. or Gregory, they start with the incarnation and they go back into Genesis 1, made yep. in the image of God. They go a different trajectory yeah. and, they, and they keep going and they don't write half a page, they write 40 pages Tomes, yeah. on what it is to be made in the image of God. So they've got a far richer creational landscape from which to move back to the cross. So mm. that's that's what I'd say. I mean, look, the... the Essentially, this is his answer. Why did God become man? Bozo's question is um, fantastic. I mean, I really love Bozo's question. It's today's question. Um, first of all, Bozo says he's a bit frightened to ask a question of such an authority. You know, it's a very Socratic um, positioning. Anselm says, speak as you see fit. And Bozo says, unbelievers deriding us for our simplicity, object that we are inflicting injury and insult on God when we assert that he descended into a woman's womb, was born of a woman, grew up nurtured on milk and human food, and, to say nothing of other things which do not seem suitable for God, like, does, does God actually get breastfed? Like yeah. he, he's right there. He was subject to weariness, hunger, thirst, scourging, crucifixion between thieves and death. Ah, oh, that's a fabulous way to put it. I mean, it, you know, every in our world, every sceptic and the scepticism of our own hearts is, can really God have fingernails? Can yeah. really God be weary? Could God forget? Yep. Uh, you know, the... the yep. The questions are stunning once you start to think about it. If I interviewed Jesus about electricity, would he have been able to answer no, them? that's right. Um, <laughs> My daughter says she hates the line where people say, you've got to put God in the driver's seat, and she, uh, Jesus in, your drive, in the driver's seat. And she said, that could go terribly wrong. He hasn't driven a mile in his life. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I love Bozo's question because he captures it. And I say, wow, they were having similar debates then. Yeah. The power of it, the power of this is get an answer that doesn't go, oh, it says in Galatians 1, this and so get an answer yep. that actually you could talk to someone in the street about. Well, let me tell you why it matters. Yep. Now, his answer, his answer um, is a gap theory. Oh. It's a gap theory, which is um, uh, God shows the greatness of his mercy to us by the gap between his divinity and his humanity. That's it. Mm. And you think, mm, I think there was probably more to say about <laughs> it than that. Um, and interestingly, Bozo That's... is not satisfied with that answer. So Bozo asked him another question, which I think is a fantastic, it's really the question for today. And, uh, um, uh, he says, essentially, I don't like your answer. So um, there is no bozo, is there? That, that's Anselm saying he doesn't like his own answer, isn't correct. it? Correct. It's a yeah. fiction. Um, I don't like that answer. Um, I'm trying to, oh, yeah, this is it. So he, he's unsatisfied. He said, uh, well, this word ransom, because he starts to use mm. the word ransom. I'm not sure about this, but he said, people say to us, 
Now, in what captivity or in what prison mm -hmm. or in whose power were you held from which God could not set you free without ransoming you by so many exertions and in the end by his own blood? I, I just think that is a fan. In what a, prison yeah. are you held? And that's yeah. really... If you can't answer that, if we can't answer that in today's terms without using religious language, we we haven't got uh, a gospel to share and and, and and merely to kind of code that back to, oh, look, you've got problems you don't know about, they're called sins. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you weren't so sinful, this would be obvious to you. Yes, and <laughs> that's right. he, Bozo, does imply what the prison is when he, he says it was from, when we say to people it was from our sins and from his own anger and from hell and from the power of the devil that God ransomed us, then then they're not listening. So um, I that question is, I think, a riveting question for us to find new answers to. I've thought about that. I've thought about that. I went to a wedding. It was a gay wedding um, some time back of a relative of ours. I felt awkward during the, the whole thing, but I was you know, very love, you know, happy for the people. I love them. But I just kept like, like, what gospel? If I was... If I had the chance to stand up in front of this crowd and talk about Jesus and the gospel, what, where would I start? Mm. What, what would I say to them? How would I find the language to talk about, you know, yeah. how would I position the problem? Um, and, I, and I think that there's not one answer. That's an Act 17 Mars Hill thing. You know, but Extreme. Bozo was onto that. Um, and... Uh, the answer that Elm and Sal gave was um, uh, essentially only that the, incarn the incarnation was, was only ne necessitated by redemption. Um, his, uh, his reasoning um, is a sort of a, a flat reasoning um, that you read it through and think, Yes, but I mean, it's not. He's just repeating things. It's what. Yeah, uh, it, uh, it's what I call. Um, it's sort of sequential logic thinking without depth behind things. So um, I won't keep going too much longer because uh, obviously it gets dense. But let me look ahead and see. Um, Yes, when Bozo actually says, you have to prove in what you say that there was absolutely no other way to get us out of whatever prison you think except by this mechanism. There yep. can be no... And, and that, and Which is more important. The, what, why is that mechanism necessary is more important than the nature of the prison at the end of the day, isn't it? Yes, it is. And... and Yes, why was the mechanism necessary? Yeah. And it, that, that's really, explain the problem better. Yeah. That's what those are saying. Explain the problem better so that we can see there was no other way. Explain the problem in such a way that the only key into the lock of that prison had to be yep. God died. Nothing else would get me out of that prison. Or And we would say, you know, when I was reading um, Anselm, it, it's very clear that I think he would have been enormously helped by having your theory of dominion and he would have had an a, a stronger answer to Bozo's questions yep. 
because if I was rewriting this, I'd keep both those questions, but I'd, I'd you know, beef up the answers by not so much a theory of sin. You've already described exactly where he gets to, which we'll finish on mm. again in a moment, but I think he would have had so much stronger answers if he'd have been able to talk about the lost dominion. Yep. Because what Bozo keeps driving for is why was the logic of the cross so necessary? Why couldn't he just, boom, by decree, by fiat, intervene with everything and start all over again? Why? And, of course, within the created order, he would have, uh, he would have blown his project up. Because within the project, as you've said, humanity had to have freedom. Mm. Now, we, whilst this is complex in a way theologically, it's not complex for anyone as a parent. Yeah, that's like, true. Or anyone who's a teacher. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, you know, if I'm trying to teach somebody in, in, in experiential learning, I, so I can always jump in because they're, they're doing it wrong and I jump in and I, that's, there's an instinct for every teacher or parent, I want to jump in and intervene and do it wrong. And then it's all like, that was not okay because you don't grow. Yep. And in, that's just a microcosm really of the answer yeah. as to, uh, to Bozo's question. If he did intervene, the creation project's finished. The Dominion project's finished. But he, when he came, you, 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 you described his discussion of sin mm. quite, ad, quite adequately. It, it is amazing. Um, it is amazing to read through the, the, the pages where he talks about this honour system mm. because um, it's chilling and it's sad that that's what he... But he, so clearly, in the back of his mind, he has the feudal landlord. Absolutely. And, and uh, he, he does do exactly what you said, um, which is... I'll just finish on this point because it's, it's uh, critical, um, which is we must define um, what sin is. Yep. If we're going to talk about how God forgives then we have to define what sin is. So that was, I'll just go down my notes, which is where he goes on to what you said. Um, this is vital, because you've defined sin for us as uh, or the fall, not believing God wanted good for me. Hmm. Um, here's his words. Um, he said, we must see what it is to sin. First question. Uh, this is answer, and what it is to give satisfaction for sin. Straight away, that word's a giveaway. Yep. Satisfaction. Um, and Bozo's now very humble. He said, it's for you to demonstrate and for me to pay attention. So now he's going <laughs> to stop asking questions. <laughs> um, and he said, this is it, if an angel or a human being, a man, were always to render to God what he owes, he would never sin. That is the definition. It's a, it's a negative definition. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Don't yeah, do yeah. this Don't and you're do okay. This. Yeah, there's there's nothing. nothing positive about it, about a mission or anything. But in, there's no purpose. But the, there's no purpose. And the language is, if you think, hang on, this is the language of a peasant working in the fields who's got to pay taxes and entry fees. Yep. And he must always render to the landlord what he owes. Yep. And everything will be okay. That is the definition. Not rendering to the landlord what he owes is the definition of sin. And he doesn't change it. Everything flows out of that definition of sin. And Bozo says, I cannot contradict this. 
pity Bozo yeah, Bozo, have helped you. You're doing so well. So Bozo is Anselm. So uh, this is why I think people say Anselm's relatively humble, because he knows he's not doing a very good argument. Because Bozo says such clarifying comments. He does, but here Bozo... But is, now he throws in the towel. Bozo's throwing the towel in, and it's all okay. And then Anselm then says, then to sin is nothing other than not to give God what is owed to him. Yeah. That's it. That's it. So yeah. we can all see that tucked in behind that is a mental model and landscape of this peasant class vassal yep. with a landlord. So it's, it's going to go downhill from here, and I don't think we need to go... Any, any further to that. But, but if I don't do that, if I don't do that, mm. then he introduces the language of insult. Yep. So you've That's got right. a picture of some upstart young peasant who sort of says, up yours to the landlord as he's driving past in his gold carriage. And well, that's the end of it. It's an insult. He's going to yep. get his head chopped off. The language of honour and insult is not casual. It's absolutely central. He doesn't go outside of it. He doesn't introduce other concepts. He's a victim of this feudal concept. But... That becomes his picture of God. Yep. That's the critical point. That is, that has framed his picture of God, and uh, um, he doesn't he doesn't get out of that. And so I suppose, as I was reading that, what I thought about was another essay, one by Bulkakov, Bulkakov, I think I meant to say, um, on Saint Augustine when he was. He was essentially doing something very similar to, in his critique of Augustine's predestination concept, um, which is scrape it back and Augustine's God is a despot. Yep. That's what, that's what, that's what Bukharkov says. Augustine's God yeah. is a despot. Yep. And there's no other way around it, and he mightn't like it, but that's where absolutely everything... And, and you say the same thing with Anselm, scrape it back, and he's God's a landlord mm. from the noble classes. And uh, Bulkakov's criticism is this rather polite understatement. This is an inadequate way to represent the, re the relation between God as creator and the cosmos. And so I think that's, that's from, a, you know, that we can say the same for dear Anselm. Um, as I say, uh, for whom I um, I had a lot of affection as I was reading it. Yeah, yeah. This this whole thing takes me back to um, something we said a few months ago. Now that it everyone will say they believe God is is angry on occasions and is loving, and so the, the a question for us because everyone can say those two things are true. Um, is God essentially angry and a, a, a feudal lord and has occasion to be loving or is he essentially loving and has occasion to be angry and when when Bukov says you, you can peel back the onion layers and you find that the Augustine God is essentially angry is essentially angry you know I reckon Augustine would be horrified by that because he'd want to say no he's gracious and loving and, and the question you've got to ask is what what's essential to God and what's an accident is he essentially loving and it's just accidental or incidental because of the way we behave that there's cause to be angry? Or is, is this guy a feudal lord and he's, he, he's he, grumpy? Augustine would be horrified if you pinned him on it. Yep. Um, and Bulkakov is smart enough to know that. 
but he knows that that is the trajectory of all of his thought. Yeah. And that's where it's coming from, but he won't admit it. And, and so, the, the guy didn't have Greek and he didn't have Hebrew. Well, neither, neither did Augustine or Anselm. So it's just really interesting now we're supposed to have Greek. And, and those people who are, you know, the father of the church or Western church. Well, the great irony is that uh, in, in the Reformed tradition, um, which is sola scripture and study your Latin and Greek, the great hero, uh, heroes did not, did not do that. Yeah. They wouldn't have done well at more college. They wouldn't have. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I think that's a good time to wrap up. Yep. Um, and um, we'll continue on now. Let's just finish by saying that the next thing we'll be doing will be the conference with David Bentley Hart yeah. in August. We're looking forward to that very much, which means that the next Cross and Creation journey mm -hmm. will be sometime after that. Indeed it will. Thank you, Andrew. Okay.